One woman told me about someone trying to set her hijab on fire. You have women who could have lived had they had access to health. Young men are like routinely excluded from civilian death counts. They are the most vulnerable to recruitment, but when they arrive at the border, they are the most threatening category of migrant to arrive. I, as a human being, will not stand for this type of behaviour. Hey, my name is Andrea T. Sevenson, and welcome back to Peace and Gender. In this podcast, I'm trying to look at different gendered inequalities, meeting the people who are actually seeking solutions and making change, and getting to know both their research and their personal story. We've got women's participation in peace processes. We've got these gender provisions being really important to be included in peace agreements. But what happens afterwards? What actually happens to women's participation? How are these provisions being implemented? That is Sarah Hewitt. Sarah is a PhD student at Monash University, and she focuses on how women's participation in peace processes influences the incorporation of gender provisions in peace agreements. You know, if women in the peace process did participate, what happens to their participation after an agreement has been signed? What happens to the networking or the civil society organisations that are included um, or that are mobilised informally around these peace processes? What does really happen after gender provisions are implemented? It's important to say, okay, there's been all of this attention on why women need to be present and why women need to participate in these forums that are creating these documents. But it's also important to say, okay, these documents have been created, but what happens to them? How are women interacting with them? How are they deploying these rights? How are they using them? How are they utilising to advance women's rights, to advance their own participation, to advance their own bodily autonomy? Sarah is part of a long-term project, which is mapping gender provisions of peace agreements. So Sarah is in charge of two countries, Kenya and Nepal. And there is a reason why she made this choice. And so the reasons I look at these two countries was because they had a peace process after 2000. And they both had peace processes that resulted in really gender-sensitive constitutions, Um, So they had these agreements and then they had this constitutional process. So gender provisions within these constitutions kind of, it brought about increases in women's parliamentary representation, for instance. It kind of made it constitutional that women have have equal access to inheritance and equal access to property, which is so important for their economic autonomy, right? And for them to be able to decide over their livelihoods. And, you know, like for Nepal, it's the first country in the Asia and the Pacific to have a constitutional gender provision protecting sexual minorities. Before learning more about her project, I wanted to know more about why Sarah started getting involved with international relations and why she's so interested in peace and women's experiences of peace. So I was born in South Africa and my mum was a journalist uh, in South Africa during the apartheid era. And when she had my older brother, she kind of had to quit her job because my dad was uh, training to be a surgeon and she kind of had to be going to that caring role um, of motherhood. And she never kind of got back into journalism because we moved around a lot for my father's job and we ended up in Tasmania. But I think because of my mum, right, because she had been there during that time where she saw racial and sexual marginalisation at a huge and horrific scale. And she would talk about it and they'd have great dinner parties where they discuss politics and things like race and gender. And So 
kind of from an early age, I was kind of exposed to those kind of social justice ideas, um, which led me to kind of leave Tasmania and, and, and go to university and, and do a Bachelor of Arts um, majoring in international relations and political science. Well, it's kind of because of your mum. It's kind of because of my mum. Yeah, for sure. So the project that Sarah is a part of, which is called Towards Inclusive Peace, Mapping Gender Provisions of Peace Agreements, is looking at 20 countries. So although gender provisions are put in place in post-conflict areas, what actually happens to the women after this? The project Sarah is a part of focuses on hearing the stories of these women, hearing their voices, how they experience the gender provisions. There's not there's not much documentation of people's stories, um, how they organise, how they how how a women's rights activist got to where she is, right? Someone who works in women's civil society. What is their story? And it's an extreme privilege to be able to listen to that and to be able to ask questions about that and, you know, try and create research that is beneficial to them at the same time. Through working on this project and through her fieldwork, Sarah has heard numerous stories from women about their experiences. We were in quite this small, small space and, you know, we were kind of looking out at this like um, acacia tree. It was was a very African setting, right? Um, It was really hot. (laughs) <laughs> and like sweaty and we were on these uncomfortable chairs after just driving for like two and a half hours <laughs> and eight hours the day before. We're sitting there with these women and so early in child marriage comes up. When we are, well, when I asked, asked um, these women, well, how do we, th- what do you see as a strategy for kind of keeping your young girls, your young daughters out of early in child marriage? And they were like, education, but there's really no option. Like, we don't have an option. There is no strategy for us. And I got really, really emotional because you could see these invisible prison bars that were surrounding these women. They had no way of getting out bathroom education. It's those kind of stories, I think, that you know, really highlight the lived experiences of women and in some in some spaces where they can't often get out of their predicaments, um, you know, and you just, like, I don't really get much emotional in interviews or focus groups because it's not my space. Um, but they, like, these, all these, like, lovely, lovely women were like, oh, are you okay? Because uh, I had tears in my eyes and I, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm sorry for crying. I just... I mean, there's there's no strategy. There's no way to get, there's no problem solving here to kind of get these women out of this situation of seeing their daughters being married off at the age probably to a man, an older man who may have one or two wives already, um, you know, getting married off at 13 or 14 or even 12. So it's just, it's tough. You hear those kinds of stories all the time. However, Sarah says that it's not all doom and gloom. These women are incredible. What was really interesting in, in Kenya, for instance, was how these constitutional gender provisions, they provided a stepping stone for women to say, no, I have a right to space. I have a right to speak my mind. I have a right to be here um, and kind of and claim these rights. 
they're not they're not passive in this. And these gender provisions have provided a space for them to kind of, you know, claim the stakes that are being uh, the the fight, claim stakes in the fight that's being kind of enacted onto their bodies. After a conflict occurs, gender relations within households change. During conflict, for instance, there's a lot of feminist literature that kind of discusses how changing gender relations during conflict where women's seclusion within a household is no longer affordable because a lot of men go off to war or go off to fight or get killed, women have to kind of come out of the household. But what this has kind of shown is that these changing gender relations, women have come out into the public sphere, but are they going to go back into the private sphere once so-called peace comes? So it's how can we utilise these changing gender relations at this critical opportunity or this critical moment of peacemaking or peace processes to kind of solidify this transformation of gender relations where women are in the public and they're not relegated back to the private sphere? How can we use that to kind of make sure that women's rights are in these provisions so they, they do have a basis for women to claim their rights? And a lot of the times this doesn't happen. Both the term post-conflict, or just conflict in general, and the word peace has different gendered meanings. Conflicts aren't just these big things with guns. It's also, within a household, negotiation between men and women, um, husbands and wives, between daughters and fathers, fathers and sons. All of these gender dynamics, um, how, how are they being affected? Let's define peace right? That's really problematic. Um, And that's something that I've kind of been struggling um, with my research because, you know, we're looking at the post-conflict. I mean, the research has shown us that post-conflict for women is not post-conflict. Often there is a rise of violence against women in post-conflict times. You know, you have peacekeeping economies that emerge that um, where, you know, you have these peacekeeping forces that come into these communities and there's a rise of, of the sex trade, for instance. So, post-conflict, oh, it's also something that needs to be interrogated in regards to these documents because so much of the time it's not post-conflict for women. So peace is very different for men and women. Even outside of feminist circles or even kind of critical theorists, there is no discussion of how peace that is created currently is created by men who have been extremely privileged due to patriarchal privilege, right? Where Peace and militarism and patriarchy and militarism is so tied in with each other that how can you expect a peace that actually affords women peace, right? In And that the peace that only looks at peace within the public sphere, how can that benefit women? And it can't because their priorities are not heard, their needs are not considered, their, their wants, um, you know, and their safety is only kind of scarcely looked at. The project has contributed to how Sarah has structured her PhD, with some of her theses looking at violence against women in politics. You know, what came out of my Kenya research was just the amount of harassment and intimidation that women experience. Because there are these gender provisions that say women have to participate in such and such ways, women have to do it, right? But there's no structures within those provisions that provide safety for women in, in, in carrying these provisions out. There was one instance that I, was, that, I, that I heard about in Kenya where a woman who was vying for a governor position, there'd never been a female governor before, 
a woman who was vying for the governor position, her opponent um, organised a bunch of women to throw pig's blood on her. The reason for this was so her opponent could say, she can't even take care of her own period. How do you expect her to take care of a county? It's drawing these connections between women's sexuality, women's morality and attitudes towards leadership that is indicative and, and these manifestations of violence and harassment, like they're so indicative of, of wider patriarchal kind of underpinnings of how these how how Kenyan society anyway functions. Like there was this other woman in this kind of regional town that um, I met and she was telling me her story. Uh, she was young and to be young in Kenya, age is seen as something that is to be respected. So this woman, she was kind of going for a local constituency for the local government and she had a relatively successful business and she decided that, no, uh, there's this new constitution in place. I'm going to go vie for, to, to be a politician, right? The, her constituency really liked her um, and she... She she invested all of her money in, all of her business. Her husband ended up leaving her because he didn't want a publicly active wife. Um, and she won, which is fantastic, right? So this woman was in the party nomination phase, which she needed to win to get into the official election. And she had to travel to Nairobi to get her nomination slip. And so she got to Nairobi and when she went to go get her nomination slip, they'd given it to her male opponent. So it was an actual theft of her candidacy because she was a woman, she was a young woman, and it was just like she has no recourse to justice. There is no way for her to go and for her to say, look, this guy stole my candidacy. He's now in parliament, well, the local parliament. But, like, it's just, I think, so indicative of just the wider problems um, of intimidation that women face when when they are in public spaces and when they're strong women. Like there's such a move towards getting meek women into these spaces. So like there's this fascinating phenomena that has kind of occurred in Kenya where at local level governments um, nominated women, so they're not elected, they're nominated to fill a gender quota. They get way less resources, um, way less kind of influence, way less decision-making power. They don't get any staff, I don't think, um, depending on county to county, but they get hardly any staff to support them. And they're just called flower girls. You know, they'll be caught into a meeting. Decisions will, will already be made, but they'll have to have a tick box to say, a woman was included in this meeting. So the decision was made, come in, and, yep, this is all good. This is all satisfied the gender requirements that are imposed upon us. And on one level, like, there's such a lack of implementation of a lot of these provisions and a lot of these agreements and stuff, like, just as there are laws, so, you know, policies and legislation that is passed, which is really great because it sets, it sets up the legal framework, but the reality is very, very different. That was Sarah Hewitt. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Peace and Gender. My name is Andrea T. Evanson, and this podcast was produced for Monash Gender Peace and Security and Mojo News. <laughs>